This is Robotic Disclosure, the program that reveals everything you want to know about robotic surgery, robotic technology, and how to run a best practice robotic program for your hospital, your surgeons, and your patients. And now, here's your host, Josh Feldstein. Our next guest is Dr. Rick Fines, a man who really knows how to train surgeons. Dr. Fines trained in general and cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Rochester, where he served on the faculty until 2005 before joining the faculty of UNC School of Medicine in Chapel Hill as a thoracic surgeon, professor of surgery, and medical director of perioperative care at UNC Hospital before his recent retirement. Dr. Fines is a national leader in simulation-based training for surgery residents and served as a principal investigator on a $1 million multi-institution grant from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the largest study of simulation-based surgical training to date and which clearly demonstrated the advantage of simulation-based training in improved skills and safety in cardiac surgery. Rick serves on the advisory board of the Institute for Surgical Excellence and is also co-founder and scientific advisor to KindHeart, a unique company that delivers truly amazing and realistic technology for abdominal, thoracic, and cardiac surgical procedures, which he'll tell us much more about. Dr. Fines has served on the board of directors of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, the Joint Council for Surgical Education, and the Thoracic Surgery Foundation for Research and Education. And I'm probably missing half of his distinguished resume. Welcome to the show, Rick. We're really looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you, Josh. Happy to be here. Let's get started with some absolute musts. When we think about surgeon training, and this is something that you've spent years of your life focusing on, what do you consider absolute musts with regard to bringing a robotic surgeon uh, forward in, in the most uh, advanced and uh, qualitatively uh, thoughtful way? Well, I think that the uh, most important thing with regard to sur- surgeon preparedness uh, really is the absolute that the training must prepare the surgeon to do the operation in an acceptable manner prior to starting clinical work. Like so often, in today's environment, a lot of that work is done after the surgeon, unfortunately, has started uh, clinical work. Uh, and and that this training process uh, must include the basic principles of, of deliberate practice and uh, component uh, task uh, training. And uh, uh, part of that also is that we must have at very good assessment tools so that we know when a surgeon reaches the point uh, at which he or she uh, should then start on patients. Can you define for our listeners a little bit more about deliberate practice, what the definition of that is and what that translates into in terms of uh, actual skills? Right. Well, deliberate practice is is a little bit different than what many people might think of it. It was uh, uh, proposed by uh, a psychologist from Florida State University, um, who really has made his whole life, uh, his whole life's work has been based upon how people achieve excellence in in skills, be that musicians or uh, athletes or whatever. And what he discovered was they all uh, trained using what he called deliberate practice. And 
<clears throat> deliberate practice uh, is 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 different. It requires uh, the the participant to over and over again uh, do components of a of an overall task. Uh, so, for example, uh, in robotic surgery, uh, that might be nothing more than just docking and undocking. But they do it in a repetitive fashion. Uh, it requires a a constant oversight from an experienced uh, coach who can correct things. Uh, and it also uh, requires the ability to get out of one's comfort zone, to do things that, that, that would expand the overall the surgeon's overall capacity to do something. If you just stay in your comfort zone, you can practice it over and over again, but you won't get any better than, than, than what you're, what you're doing. So deliberate practice is sort of over and over again, uh, shooting free throws over and over again, or you can use various sports analogies, but it's really repetition in a uh, controlled environment that, that leads to, to uh, excellence in that performing of that skill. Thank you. And, and you're also describing breaking up the components of the surgical procedure uh, in a way that uh, the surgeon can then focus on areas that are less comfortable uh, or more challenging or where the skill set is perhaps not as uh, strong or fluid as it needs to be. So then the surgeon can take a step or two back and start working on more essential or more foundational uh, type things. If if in your uh, experience a surgeon takes the time in a simulated environment or a non-live clinical environment to to uh, accomplish all this, what happens to the surgeon's learning curve? How does that affect cost effectiveness? How does that affect quality? Right. So uh, we have a fair amount of experience with that, and actually uh, did a three-year uh, study in cardiac surgery using the cardiac surgery simulator uh, that was uh, financed by the uh, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and Research. And uh, what we found was that you could take a large uh, complex procedure, for example, an aortic valve operation or a coronary artery bypass, break it down into its component tasks, uh, train using the principles of deliberate practice over and over again so that these component tasks uh, were, were mastered. And, and what we found on our, in our assessment tools is that people as you might expect, rapidly got very, very good at the, at the each component task. We then took those component tasks in the last uh, three weeks and we combined them back together into the entire procedure. And what we found at that point was that, that initially the component task quality dropped off a little bit because it was in the context of all of these other tasks. But then it rapidly even exceeded what it was doing in the component tasks setting and the full procedure setting, uh, they were able to uh, do that uh, much, much better. Now, it's been difficult to, to, to necessarily translate this uh, over into the, to the, to see what the translation is into the clinical region area with hard data, but we have a lot of anecdotal data that, that, the, that the residents and the trainees who do this uh, learn how to do the operation much better and much, much quicker in the, in the uh, clinical arena. And what is, what happens basically is that that learning curve that uh, we subject our patients to when we, when we learn a new procedure uh, ends up moving to the left and there are far fewer patients that have to be subjected to that uh, level of surgery prior to reaching expertise. 
this is a, a, a completely different paradigm than most institutions follow. And it sounds like, frankly, most institutions aren't even aware of, of this degree of, of, uh, of uh, specificity relative to training. When uh, uh, ad- administration of hospitals uh, hear about this, Rick, uh, and uh, uh, chairs of robotic programs or, or directors of surgery hear about this, what is the usual response uh, to, to this type of, uh, of an approach? Well, quite frankly, the, the, uh, they all understand the concept. Uh, they all understand it. And, and no one certainly can argue with the fact that a surgeon needs to be uh, prepared, completely prepared before he or she uh, starts to do clinical work. So they, they understand that. But the, the adoption of, of the discipline necessary both from a credentialing standpoint and uh, from the surgeon's own standpoint, to to get this done has has been somewhat of a challenge. Uh, there are economic uh, economic issues involved. The surgeon would have to come offline. Uh, he or she is not generating any income for for themselves or for the hospital during this uh, during this type of uh, of practice. So the paradigm, as you well know, in the past has really been what what I would consider most people a not not nearly enough training and then sort of going into the clinical arena and uh, picking up the rest of, of of the expertise you need uh, in the clinical arena on on patients uh, so so we're still working quite quite strongly with uh, insurance companies and with administration some are more enlightened than others uh, to to get to the point where there are certain credentialing standards that must be met prior to to uh, starting clinical work, and I think the 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 hospitals I think are going to come to understand what we have already shown that the surgeons can do it better and faster and more economically on patients if they've already learned how to do it in the simulated environment. When you think about uh, putting pressure on hospital administration to move the ball downfield on this, uh, you talked about credentialing as an example of uh, what needs to be mandated to make something like this happen. Uh, Where are we relative to uh, government agencies putting their eyes on this process saying, wait a minute, um, uh, are we going to leave it to the hospitals to police their own? Are we going to leave it to the medical societies just to put a policy out there that may or may not be uh, uh, followed? They may or may not be compliance. Where are we with JACO, uh, FDA, uh, and, and other uh, government bodies uh, looking at this to, to opine on uh, whether and to what degree uh, hospitals and hospital administration will simply have uh, uh, free reign in terms of either doing this uh, or not doing this? Well, I think that the that there hasn't been very much of that uh, uh, coming down from the top, and and quite frankly, I think that um, the entire profession, surgical profession, uh, the prof- uh, or the area of surgery, would be better served if we policed our own than if it was inflicted upon us by some by some third party. Uh, there is a requirement from uh, the Joint Commission that that you have credentialing and that it uh, look at certain things and this and that. But it, but there isn't any uh, follow up in the uh, in terms of the quality of what that is. So I think that 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 my guess is that that the pressure may come from the public, 
and the pressure will come from uh, insurance carriers. Uh, certainly, the the risk to the patient is decreased the better the train the surgeon is, and I think those forces are going to are going to come come to bear. Uh, we can also hope that 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 residents during their residency will become more accustomed to simulation as a pathway to excellence, and when they get out into practice and they are adopting new new technology, new procedures such as robotic or whatever, that that this is the the pathway that is is acceptable to them, uh, rather, and that it would not be acceptable to, acceptable to them to to uh, do this on patients. That makes a, a tremendous amount of, of sense. I'm sure nobody would disagree with that. And when you think about simulation, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the approaches to simulation currently uh, as it applies to robotics and minimally invasive surgery or even open surgery for that matter. I know you've uh, been involved with this for many years, and I know in, in your capacity at KindHeart, uh, you guys are doing some fascinating work. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Certainly. So the um, the simulation area robotics first of all uh lends itself quite quite readily to uh simulation much as the airline industry has uh there have been a, there are a number of different types of simulation that we, that uh, has have been used in robotic uh starting with the uh synthetic just using the robot on synthetic uh very very rudimentary uh simulators uh, moving moving rings from peg to peg and that that kind of thing that 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 seems to be pretty good for understanding uh, uh, the clutching and the uh, camera uh, zooming in and zooming out and changing instruments and things like that the real, real fundamentals of robotic surgery uh, which is uh, now available also uses uh, validated synthetic uh, things to uh, uh, to to kind of teach these uh, skills and then the next step up is really the virtual, uh, the virtual type of simulators. Uh, I don't want to call them video games because these are far, far advanced uh, uh, simulators. Some that are even uh, simulations of entire procedures, and you actually uh, actually do that. So, so that those those two things, uh, and then of course uh, there's been a simulation on live animals, uh, uh, mostly uh, mostly pigs. Uh, but there, there are problems with all of those, uh, and I think as a surgeon, all uh, as surgeons, we would all agree that playing with synthetic things just just doesn't uh, just doesn't really give us the feel and the confidence, uh, and quite frankly, the technical skill to be able to have confidence that we can do it on on a patient. Uh, the virtual is very good; the anatomy is there, but but tissues don't tend to behave the same uh, in the virtual as they do. So KindHeart has, uh, for the last, uh, my lab has been working for probably the last uh, 10, 12 years, and KindHeart now has been in existence for about five years, uh, to provide a real tissue uh, experience comparable to a live animal without, uh, the, without needing live animals. And basically, uh, we take uh, uh, animal tissue of the appropriate type. Uh, we're able to preserve it for a prolonged period of time. Uh, with uh, just refrigeration, and then it is uh, reanimated, uh, appropriate to whatever the uh, simulation needs, and then placed in a uh, in a humanoid type I- environment. So, uh, for example, our foregut simulator basically 
is essentially the same as what one would do on a live uh, pig. The tissue reacts the same, and it allows it allows uh, the surgeon to either do component task training or to do an entire procedure with the with the um, sort of the confidence that the tissue kind of moves the same as in the human. Uh, it, energy is used, cautery is used, uh, uh, tensions and such. As you know, uh, robotic haptics is a learned phenomenon, and you can learn that on this tissue because it's so close to human human tissue. So that is sort of uh, what we have what we've found, and I think uh, gradually, as those people who've been using live animals have seen our work, uh, and also the other ones, they've they've realized that there's a um, a, 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 it is able to replace the live animals in most every instance, and it also provides an, an excellent transition from the from the virtual before the before the clinical work has to start. This is fascinating technology, and I think as a as a practical add on to that, um, you know, when we speak to uh, surgeons, they're very aware of the learning curve when it comes to robotic uh, surgery. Uh, I don't know that administrators or, for that matter, patients, consumers, are in any way aware of this. Uh, and when you think about the learning curve for any surgical procedure, Rick, uh, we're talking about robotic surgery, obviously, here on Robotic Disclosure. But the learning curve takes 25 cases. It takes 50 cases. It takes, in some reports, 100 cases, whatever the case may be. That's a lot of cases for surgeons to be learning, quote unquote, in a, a real patient environment. Uh, uh, and not only is there a, uh, a safety risk, a quality risk, but uh, there's also a significant cost risk because you have tremendous additional supplies. Case times take very, very long. Uh, the patient is exposed to uh, all kinds of, of um, environmental uh, uh, elements that uh, inefficient uh, surgery uh, does not uh, uh, present to the to the patient. So, if you could speak a little bit to this, when you have uh, uh, a technology, uh, so whether it's virtual and virtual combined combined with with Kindheart. Uh, what does this do to compress the learning curve? What does this do to uh, uh, increase the quality of the surgery faster? If you could speak to all of this, so this is a, a fascinating, a fascinating angle. Well, you're you're quite right about uh, about the uh, um, the effects that that a learning curve has on a clinical operation. We found this uh, uh, when I was head at the University of uh, North Carolina's operating when I was the medical director of their operating rooms. And what we would find is that operations that would that ordinarily should take uh, three, four hours were taking six, seven hours uh, because the surgeon was being very careful and very deliberate learning the operation uh, in an environment where he or she did not want to harm the patient. But the end result was that uh, if you, if, for example, you say that an operation is going to take seven hours rather than four hours, you essentially have your robotic capacity uh, when that happens. So it's it's extremely uh, inefficient, and uh, we had we had definite capacity issues uh, as uh, various surgeons learned uh, learned procedures. And as robotics goes on, that that's going to become even that that process is going to have to come under even more and more scrutiny because, uh, particularly for the practicing practicing surgeon, there is you know there isn't a uh, like with a resident, an attending surgeon that can take take over and speed it up or anything, you have to kind of go go with what 
your own at your own speed. So we found exactly what you said: the uh, instruments, uh, the frustration of the staff, uh, the length of time that it was taken. Uh, I don't know that we necessarily uh, nailed down uh, outcomes uh, in terms of the patients. Uh, I would uh, hope the outcomes were the same, but we certainly know that the longer surgery takes uh, uh, has been associated with poor poor outcomes uh, by by doing these operations over and over again in a controlled environment with coaching, being able to stop and start and take it apart and look at what you've done and everything. Uh, we, uh, we have, uh, believe that the learning curve can be significantly shortened. So if it's 30, maybe it would end up to be 10. I don't think you can, um, eradicate it completely, but, but nor do I think that there's any surgeon who given a choice would prefer to be learning this on patients if he or she could learn it uh, in, in an environment beforehand. So, and and one of the things about certainly about the kind heart model uh, is that that it that it includes both a patient bed aspect of it and it, it's essentially the same as in the operating room. So the ability to train teams in. Uh, uh, in in the bedside assistant, uh, in setting up the robot, and setting up the tables and everything, that all can be done. Uh, that all can be done within the context of of the full operation. If you're going to do a, do a robotic bariatric operation, for example, the surgeon's doing the operation, but the whole team has to be involved to get that done on our simulator, just as they would uh, on a patient. So the opportunity to train uh, is, is is very very great in in that environment. Uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, challenges that uh, has come up is the fact that there aren't a lot of training robots around. Um, some simulation centers have robots that are dedicated to training, but most uh, most centers, uh, including uh, University of North Carolina, do not. So uh, the question is, how do we get the access to these robots? And and we at uh, UNC. Uh, had our uh, epidemiology group, which is a uh, which is one of the leaders in sterilization, sterile environment, and the sterile OR environment, go over uh, the uh, safe procedures to be able to use the real tissue simulators on uh, with the clinical robot in the operating rooms after hours uh, and uh, and on weekends. And uh, we have we have come up with a policy that allows for the for real tissue and this this fidelity of, uh, of training to occur after hours in, in the operating room, which is, which is essentially going to expand the number of opportunities, uh, the number of centers where these opportunities are available to six or 7,000 from just a few robotic simulation centers that have robots now. Wow. That's really incredible. Rick, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? Uh, one of the things that, uh, that, that, that Kava brought to us at UNC really was the um, ability to look at what we were doing. I mean, we were we were one of the first people to do robotic uh, uh, hysterectomies, one of the first to do robotic uh, prostatectomies, and thought we were really, really pretty good, and we were kind of plugging along and everything. But but it was a delusion, and I think that what Kava was able to show by, by Kavalytics and stuff was to bring to us what the reality was and not only what the reality was, but a pathway to get to, to, to get to the level that we needed to be at. And I think that's a message that, uh, that, that needs to be out there. I think without the ability to look at what you're doing with data that is, 
that is uh, believed and scrubbed and uh, well analyzed, be it video or through ca- uh, catalytics, I think is a, is is an important part of, of of making a program an outstanding program. I mean, I really do firmly believe it's been a dramatic uh, uh, in improvement in the overall quality and also to set the the culture of of improvement. You know, uh, as you recall, when we started out, there was a lot of suspicion of what Kava meant and what they were really trying to do, and all that's sort of gone away and everybody just kind of plugged along to make things better. And to have that culture alone is tremendously worthwhile. We've been speaking with Dr. Rick Fines, a national leader in simulation-based training for surgery. If you have any questions for Dr. Rick Fines or would like to share comments with us, we'd love to hear from you at roboticdisclosure at gmail.com. You've been listening to Robotic Disclosure. Robotic Disclosure is produced by Kava Robotics International, helping hospitals create profitable, high-quality, best-practice robotic programs in the U.S. and around the world since 2011. Visit kava-robotics.com.